thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2019. We are back and we are asking, can dark matter make dark stars? The gut-busting question of why is there always room for dessert? And do the astronauts on the International Space Station have Wi-Fi? I'm Chris Smith and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up, let me introduce our guest this week. Richard Hollingham is one half of the Space Boffins of Space Boffins podcast fame. He's a space science journalist and he'll take any questions on about space exploration. Anna-Laura Van Harmelen, she's a Cambridge University psychologist. She specialises in mental health, particularly adolescent mental health. Sitting along from her is Francesca Day. She's a Cambridge University astrophysicist, so the universe is quite literally her playground. And back here on Earth, Giles Yeo, also at Cambridge University, is a geneticist and he's got a special interest in food, haven't we all? Well, welcome to all of you. Now, just before we come to the questions, um, I'm very interested to ask each of you, since we have such a diverse range of, of skills and abilities here, what is the one thing, either a breakthrough, a development or a discovery, that you in your respective fields or otherwise would really like to see happen in 2019. So Richard, let's start with you from a space perspective. I would really like to see Virgin Galactic succeed in flying space tourists or maybe even Richard Branson into space properly. Just before Christmas, they managed 50 miles high in their test spacecraft. I hope they can keep doing this successfully. And so the whole space tourism market starts to take off. This is because, A, I have a bet with a friend that Virgin Galactic are going to do it, because he was convinced they're never going to do this. But also, the more companies that get involved in space, particularly these more innovative space plane type technologies, then that's going to really drive down the cost of access to space. So maybe one day we can all go into space. I used to think I really wanted to go into space. But then since I met you and I've thought about it a lot more, I've lost the inclination. Space is horrible. Really, really, really horrible. I mean, my favourite quote is from um, Star Trek, from um, McCoy in Star Trek. Space is disease and danger wrapped in darkness and silence. Love (laughs) that. Couldn't put it better myself. (laughs) Francesca, you work on things in space. You're an astrophysicist. So what would you like to see happening in the year ahead? Well, if we're wishing for things, I would like to see one of the many experiments that are searching for the identity of dark matter come up with a positive signal, and then we might finally find out what it is. Why does it actually matter that we understand this? If, it, if you know, we've existed, we have no problem existing in, in our cosmic neighbourhood, why do we need to know what this mysterious stuff is all about? Well, firstly, because I really want to know, and I think a lot of other people feel the same way, there's just this real drive to uncover how the universe works. And secondly, on a more practical level, 
anything we can do that helps us uncover the laws of physics, I think is actually very likely to have technological applications that at this stage we could really only dream of. Talking of brains and dreaming, terrible sake I know, but Anna Laura, anything you would like to, to see solved in, in 2019? Right, yeah, good segue. So I'd like to see um, scientists use or harness social media in order to better identify adolescents who are at risk for um, mental health problems. Why is this an issue, spotting them? It's an issue spotting them because we don't really know what makes adolescents vulnerable to mental health disorders. And especially we don't know what the critical at-risk behaviours are And we haven't really been looking at social media in order to answer that question. And I think that that is a really, really new thing that we can harness and and, and it will give us lots of new information. A a radical change in the way that we all live our lives, isn't it? Yeah. And and Giles? I'd like to see us better model the human brain in a dish. And the reason why is because I study obesity. That's what I study. And obesity, as we'll talk about perhaps later, is a brain disease. It involves genes within the brain. And obviously, if we're trying to study it, at the moment we're using models, we can't legally get into a human brain while they're still alive for (laughs) for obvious reasons. And so we need better technology in order to ask the questions in the human context. And ask a Petri dish why it wants to get fat. Exactly, exactly. We get we get Anna Laura coming in and saying, why do you think you're getting fat? Charles, thank you. Well, while you, you sort of think about all of that, we have a little guess who game, which we're going to play right across the programme for everyone at home to listen to. So what we do is give you a sequence of clues as the hour unfolds, and you have to try and work out what this thing is. I'll tell you for free, it's an animal. Um, the first clue is, this is what it sounds like. Any clues? We'll give you a bit more information later on as the programme goes. But for now, let's start with this question for you, Richard. What's the Wi-Fi situation in space? Do astronauts get Netflix? Well, sort of. There is Wi-Fi on the space station. So you'll probably see, if you see pictures of the space station, you'll see astronauts with iPads or laptops not connected by cables. So they have Wi-Fi, but it's not really connected to the internet as such. So they can access the internet, but mostly they are accessing NASA's communication system, which is provided by these satellites called TDRS, which are tracking and data relay satellites. So you imagine the International Space Station spinning around the Earth and then above those... It's an orbit every hour and a half, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, every 90 minutes. And then above that, in geostationary orbits, they're spinning at the same rate as the Earth, so they're just sitting there above the Earth. There are these 10 satellites which act as a data relay to the ground. So using those, you can get HD video, you can get pictures, you can get mostly all the data that NASA uses. And you see pictures or videos of uh, astronauts on the space station. It's pretty good quality. That also means you can send up movies. So yes, they have a movie night, usually I think on uh, Saturday or Sunday night. So they have movie night on the space station, they have a screen, they have a projector, and they can all sit around in the sort of dining area watching movies, but it's not Netflix. You've interviewed a lot of astronauts, haven't you? So what what do they tend to watch? Because a lot of sci-fi films, all space films, aren't they? That's a little bit kind of pathetic if you're actually up there doing it for yeah, real. Yeah, no, they do. They love their sci-fi. They love Apollo 13. You know, sort of, <laughs> oh, they not. love a disaster. They love a disaster <laughs> in space. In the same way what, that... Is that, is, um, that like, is that the sort of visual equivalent of, of sort of masochism? Is it? Well, it's the same way you can actually watch. I was intrigued. The other day I was on a, on a, a plane and I watched one of the 
an aircraft disaster movie and you can do that on planes but they like that same way in um, Antarctica so Antarctic midwinter they watch the Antarctic horror film The Thing and that's the <laughs> annual uh, movie in Antarctica there is this I think you know they're just they're astronauts aren't they I mean they're not afraid of anything <laughs> I guess that's absolutely true thank you for that Richard Giles Sam's been going bananas about this question can you help him Dear Naked Scientists, I heard that we share 50% of our DNA with bananas. Does that mean we're all half banana? Are some people more banana than others? Well, that's a golden or perhaps you could even say a, a yellow oldie, isn't it, Giles, that question? I mean, what, we, what does we, it actually mean mm, we share 50% of our genes with the banana? We clearly share 50% of some of the genes with the banana because we're all living beings like on Earth and we if effectively evolve from the same primordial soup. And so there are going to be enzymatic reactions, things that actually happen with us that are going to be shared. But Clearly, just sharing the DNA does not make you 50% of banana. I mean, it's like saying that we're 90, we share 98% of our DNA, complete DNA with, with chimpanzees. Does that make us 98% chimp? I think what is critical is not only the stuff that is there, but how it's turned on and how it's actually turned off. And I think that is probably what is the, the biggest difference is there. So no, I, I mean, we're not 50% banana per se, even though we share half our genes with the banana. Is it really coming down to the distinction of what is a gene because a gene is essentially a block of dna that does a job in a cell and that gene is made up of genetic letters which are how it's spelled out and so i could have a gene in a banana that does a similar job to a gene in a human but the actual genetic spelling of those two genes they do a very similar job in the two contexts but actually they're spelled quite differently so yep. it, it's it's actually down to semantics what actually is a gene compared b between two species that's absolutely right thank you Charles. now francesca here's one from eva which is for you can dark matter make dark stars you physicists always get the sort of rough end of the deal here because you get a question that has all this embodied knowledge within it and then you have to spend half an hour unpicking what that means. So the embodied knowledge here is dark matter. So you mentioned you mentioned this at the beginning. Can you just explain to us briefly what this is, why it matters, and also what the subtlety is in this question? Dark matter is matter that we know is out there in our galaxy and in the universe because we can see its gravitational impacts on other matter. It makes other matter move faster from its gravitational pull. But we can't see it at the moment in any other way. We can't see any light or anything that it emits. As far as we know, it doesn't emit any. And we can't detect it in any other kind of lab-based experiment on Earth. So most of the matter in the universe we don't understand, even though the regular matter we understand really, really well. So there's this kind of big tension within physics. that There's this small group of stuff, the stuff that the Earth is made of, that we really know what we're doing. And then most of the stuff out there, we've just got no clue. Could it, though, because it's gravitationally active, like the matter we're made of is gravitationally yeah. active, could it all clump together and make a huge great dark matter star, which is what the question is all about? Maybe. So it depends what exactly dark matter is. Uh, in some models of dark matter, you do get things called dark stars. And by stars, what we mean here is an object that has an inward force, so it's a clump of dark matter, there's an inward force set up by gravity and there's an outward force set up by some kind of pressure. So if dark matter interacts with itself, if it interacts with other dark matter, then it could form a star-like object. But the star wouldn't shine in the way that our stars do. I was going to say, what colour would it be? Well, that was my question, actually. Is dark matter necessarily dark? It has to be dark-ish. 
there are limits <laughs> on on how much it can interact with visible light, but it doesn't have to be completely non-interactive with visible light. And indeed, we hope it interacts a bit. Otherwise, we've really got no chance of ever discovering what it is. Let's talk about the brain for a minute. Uh, Anna-Laura, we had this from someone who didn't give the name, and they said that we're constantly hearing about mental illness in young people at the moment. Is it really on the rise, or are we just becoming more aware of this? Right. I think the answer is both, really. Adolescence is a really important time period for the emergence of mental health disorders. And we know that by age 14, 50% of all uh, mental health disorders have emerged. And by age 18, it's about 75%. So adolescence in, in itself is a really important time period where the majority of mental health disorders first emerge. And what we also know is that about one in 10 children and adolescents have a diagnosable um, mental health disorder. But in the last couple of years, the number of children and adolescents with mental health disorders has been rising. And this is particularly prevalent in girls. And a good example of that is that there's a 68% increase in the number of adolescents hospitalized for self-harming behaviors. So there's definitely a very clear pattern of emerging and increasing mental health problems in youth. I mean, how much of this do you think can be social media driven? You know, because, you know, there's orthorexia, you know, where you actually right. are, are this eating disorder where you like to eat perfectly from Instagrammers and things. I mean, how much do you think is driven by social media? So there's actually really good research done in the last couple of years about uh, the effects of social media on adolescent mental health and actually the effects are really, really little and it seems to be the case that little use of social media is actually beneficial but then a lot and lot of use is, is not beneficial but social media use research is really complicated by the fact that most studies actually look at screen time. Now, what what does screen time mean? They count chatting with your grandma on FaceTime as the same as uh, looking at a pro-Anna website, for instance. So you have negative interactions and positive interactions that are all kind of clustered together. So it isn't social media in general that we need to look at, but it's what are they doing on social media? Returning to the original question, do you think then that we are seeing a big increase in mental illness in young people or we are just becoming much better at spotting? I know you said there's a little bit of both. No, but where, there's, where, there's, what do you think there's really gut feeling clear, is really going on? No, there's a really clear evidence really that the prevalence of mental health disorders in youth is increasing. So, And it's definitely also the case that we're more aware of it and we're talking more about it, but that is unrelated to the increase. Thank you very much, Anna-Laura. If you've got a question that you'd like to get into us, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. We've heard from Ed Wilson on Twitter, Richard, who says, is there any regulation or quality control on the space tourism industry? On space tourism? Well, no. <laughs> Not to the extent once it's in space. So on Earth, yes, there is. So at the moment, the regulations have been drawn up for the space planes and they're covered by civil aviation rules. So they're slightly more relaxed because, you know, these are experimental rocket planes. So you basically sign a waiver and say, I agree to all this. But, you know, no company is going to fly tourists until they're pretty certain they're also going to bring them back to Earth again. It's really not a good commercial model uh, if you don't do that. So, yeah, there are regulations and there are regulations for rockets as well. And, and it's, it's really interesting that it's shifting. So there used to be international regulations used to uh, require a huge amount of insurance to fly anything into space. That's now shifting. So they're all becoming on a par with aviation. 
and often in depending which nation regulated by the same authorities. Thank you, Richard. We'll stay there because we've also got this question that has been sent in by Simon, who says, Can animals mate and give birth in space? It's a good question. It is a good question. Can I break that down into two things? So let's talk about the animals that we know have mated in space. So we know frogs have mated, salamanders have mated, sea urchins have mated, fish have mated. We're not sure about humans. So they're the animals that have mated in space. Then you have to look at offspring. So there are some that have given birth in space. And there are some that have conceived in space and then given birth back on Earth. So we know frogs have successfully reproduced, salamanders, sea urchins not so much, fish have successfully reproduced. I was looking at this and the best research seems to be done on mice. And they had mice conceived in space and then they brought the embryos back to Earth, watched their development. Not as successful. So not so many successful healthy mice were born as would have been born on Earth. So this is almost certainly down to lack of gravity. So there must be some... Really? Not just radiation? Well, that's that, what isn't the, there incident radiation in space? There well? is, but that's unlikely, you know, when you're only talking a few days on the space station, which is shielded and in low Earth orbit, so anyway, it's got the protection of the Earth's magnetic field. The, certainly the conclusion of that paper was that there's some gravity factor acting on the embryos. Anna Laura? How is the, the fact that they are in space? It must be really stressful for these animals. How is stress take, being taken oh, that's into account? Really Well, they probably haven't. If you were a mouse floating around (laughs) in a windowless box, you know, that's not an unstressful environment. So, yeah, absolutely. It could well be that. It could well be that. I think there is a bigger, if you're going to talk about stress, there's a bigger moral issue. If the point of doing this research is so humans can reproduce and live in space, either in an orbit around a planet in zero gravity or on the moon or Mars in lower gravity, then what are the morals of actually raising a child in that sort of environment? For the same reason we don't raise children in remote Antarctic bases, should we actually be raising children on Mars? And I think that's a, I think that's a more interesting question almost. Thanks, Richard. Uh, here is another clue in our Guess Who quiz that we're running – This is where we give you a sequence of clues through the programme and ask you to tell us what this thing is. I played you the sound it made earlier. Here's a reminder of that. (coughs) Sounds ominous, doesn't it? The next clue is that the closest relatives of this animal are members of the mongoose and meerkat families. If you think you know, though, you can tweet at Naked Scientists. Quick uh, chat about what you've been up to, Giles, because you've published this book. But just before we talk about that, there's a question that I think is relevant to what you've written in your book, which is from Mary. And Mary said, what are the best weight loss interventions? Is liposuction, for example, better than a gastric band? Can you unpack this for us a bit? I'm going to give you the short answer. And the short answer is liposuction is no good for it at all because it's cosmetic, whereas the gastric band actually tackles the source of the problem, which is food intake. Okay, So in order to unpack this, the first thing we've got to know is fat gets a bad rap, but it's actually its job is to store energy. And when we gain weight, We don't get more fat cells, not largely speaking, but your fat cells get bigger like a balloon, okay? And the problem is when you actually get to a point where the balloon gets full, then the fat goes somewhere else. And it's when it goes somewhere else, such as your muscle and liver, that you end up with type 2 diabetes, you know, increased risk of cardiovascular disease. 
blah, blah, blah. Okay. So liposuction is the metabolic equivalent of sweeping dirt under the carpet. Basically, you suck out the fat you can see. It doesn't take away the bad fat that's doing naughty things in other parts of the body that you can't. It's even worse than that, because the problem with liposuction is it removes your safe fat carrying capacity. So you can imagine of all these balloons that are, you know, going bigger, smaller, bigger, smaller, the more of these balloons you have, actually, the safer, you may not look as good, okay, and that's fair enough. But at the end of the day, you're less likely to actually tilt into disease. Liposuction may give you a nice bootay, but the problem is it actually increases your risk of disease. So it's even worse than, than sweeping it under, uh, under the uh, carpet. It's actually giving you more and sweeping it under the carpet. So gastric band should be the way to go if you're looking at the two of those. And what's the book called? The book is called Gene Eating, which is a play on clean eating. It's called The Science of Obesity and the Truth About Diets. And largely speaking, what it's looking at is the diets that are out there. Now, some of them are very fatty and have no scientific basis to it at all. But most diets work to some degree. And the question is, what the kernel of truth is? Where does that kernel of truth come from? And where the fantasy has actually has actually emerged is, is what the book's about. Most people say that most of these fatty diets work because what they do is make you more calorie conscious. So you pay more attention to what you eat more of the time and you're therefore a bit less likely to overeat. At the end of the day, a diet that works is a diet that reduces your caloric consumption, right? I mean, that is, it's physics. We, we can't actually get away from physics. But different people are going to have completely different strategies of reducing that caloric content. So my wife, for example, bans me from buying chocolate in the house. There's a plate of chocolate in front of me at the, at the moment because she loves it. We, we and, did and, that on purpose, oh. Charles. We just wanted to see. We've done the experiment. The psychologist of the room will see. There's a plate She's of irresistible saying. treats, including a cherry bakewell in front of Giles. And we're just seeing how many. We're going to weigh the plate at the end and we'll see how many you have have consumed. (laughs) Right. I'm conscious of this. But... I've given the game away now. I know you have, you have. But but I, I can't buy chocolate in the house because my wife says, I'll eat it, don't buy it in the house. That's fine. But I have no problems with chocolate, whereas pork scratchings... You can't resist those. I can't resist those. But imagine a government edict comes down to say, ban chocolate so we can lose weight. It'll only work for my wife and not for me because we're not tackling the reasons why we're going to eat more. Diets, if you've got to lose weight, are going to be personal. You have to do you. There is no magic one diet that works for everyone. So that's Gene Eating. It's out by Giles at the moment. The Naked Scientist podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith and with me are space boffin Richard Hollingham, astrophysicist Fran Day, geneticist and foodie Charles Yeo and mental health expert Anna Laura Van Hommelen. Now we've answered the questions that people have been sending in from home. Now I have for the team some questions that we made up earlier. It's the Naked Scientist Big Brain of the Week quiz and we're going to have two teams. Team one, Richard and Anna Laura. Team two, Giles and Francesca. You can confer on each of the rounds and whoever wins the most points is the Naked Scientist Big Brain of the Week. Round one is an old chestnut, an old favourite. It's called Tech Yes or Tech No? Team one, which of these is a real piece of technology? Vacuum cleaning shoes or ironing gloves? I'd like to think vacuum cleaning shoes would be great, wouldn't it? Unless they're like... Ironing gloves would just get really hot, wouldn't be really heavy. Well, maybe vacuum cleaning shoes could be um, on wheels and then you could... Like Like roller skate around. roller skate around your house and clean your hands If this doesn't exist, let's invent this. Are you going for the shoes or the gloves? I would say that the gloves are actually more realistic. What do you think? Yeah, let's go for the gloves. Yeah. yeah. Okay, you're going for the gloves. Ah, 
It's actually that you were right, Richard. The yeah, vacuum cleaning shoes gosh. are a real piece of tech. Um, someone's probably not far behind with the gloves, though. Team two, which of these is real? Jeans that double as a keyboard? Or a wallet that gets scalding hot when it's stolen and that forces the thief to drop it? So how does the wallet know when it's been stolen? It would have to be if it's far enough away from some phone or something, I guess. It's got to be, right? Because otherwise, how are you going to... So you always have to take your phone. (laughs) Otherwise, it's really disastrous. Because otherwise, jeans jeans as a keyboard? Yeah, you do get these like flexible plastics these days, right? So it could be like a... Jeans like like in DNA jeans, yeah, right? Not those sorts of jeans. They're J E A N S. Those sorts oh, of jeans. Oh, yeah. oh sorry. <laughs> See, now we 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 got to start from the beginning. I'm gonna go. I am gonna go. We got to go with the jeans. Yeah, no? I think it's the more jeans. practical. The sorry, jeans. I got jeans in the brain. Yeah, it, it is the jeans. Um, <laughs> jeans that double as a real keyboard um, are, are actually a real deal. Uh, you can buy jeans. They've got a keyboard on the crotch area, so you can, if you're in touch with your technology. You can um, you now. Can, you're making it up. You can tap away to your heart's content yes. and stay in touch with yeah. your social media oh, or your yes. friends and get any likes and that kind this of. This is th- a family program. It's as you say, Fran. Flexible plastic type technology. I'm completely. My brain fabric. was in the wrong place there. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay, Giles. We'll, we'll let you off. You, you scored a point. That's the main thing, right? Okay. <laughs> Team two are in the lead at the moment. Round two. Round two is called Weird Science. Team one. Which experiment has actually been done? Genetically engineering glow-in-the-dark cats or genetically engineering ducks so they have chickens' legs. What do you think? Oh, that guy. That's, that's not ethical. You can't do that, can you? I think glow-in-the-dark cats. cats. I think that's doable. Yeah. I think that's yeah, quite straightforward, that. doable. No, let's go with the glow-in-the-dark. We're, go, we're going for the yeah. cats. You're going for the yeah. cats. Yes, the the genetically engineered cats are real. They use the the same gene that uh, makes jellyfish grow, GFP, green fluorescent protein, to make glow-in-the-dark cats. A friend of mine actually made green glowing chickens, but no one swapped duck legs and chicken legs, as far as we know, except in a Chinese restaurant. Team two, it's level pegging now. You've got to get this one right, really. Have scientists trained dolphins to sing a national anthem, or have they trained bees to play football? I think it's the bees to play football. Okay. I, I'm sure I've seen something around. You know, it's not an actual football. It's a bee-sized football rather than a yeah, football-sized yeah, football. Yeah, yeah, they don't. <laughs> if there are enough bees working together, and they are good at that, they are, actually, it could be an actual size football. I saw a Mythbuster once in which they were asking whether bees can lift the laptop. Uh, <laughs> we're going to go with bees playing yes. football. Yeah, uh, it, it isn't 11 aside. Actually, these are individual bees uh, being trained to move a ball and they learned to move a ball by watching what other bees did. So it was bees learning socially from other bees, which, as you say, Fran, is, is what they do to, to uh, make their hives a success. In terms of dolphins singing the national anthem, the, the Miami Dolphins do, of course, sing the national anthem, but that's at the beginning <laughs> of their football game and they're not an animal, they're, they're a human. Round three. This is called Beastly Lies. Which animal superpower have we made up and which is the real deal? Team one. The naked mole rat can survive being driven over by a mini or the cockroach can survive being put in the microwave? Oh, I mean, it depends how long you put it in the microwave for, doesn't it? Could pro- probably <laughs> survive a couple of seconds, but, but an- nothing can survive that long in a microwave, can it? I've never done it, so... <laughs> you mean, to be fair, neither, neither have we driven a car over a mole rat. <laughs> well, <laughs> but no naked mole rat has no, no exterior protection against a mini, so... Yeah, it's going to have... They, they can probably dig themselves in the ground. Oh, that's true, very quickly. 
Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but then, <laughs> but then it will yeah. be protected against all traffic. So I would say the the cockroach. Yeah. Okay. We'll the, go for the yeah. cockroach. Go yeah, for the cockroach. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, the cockroach is the one that can survive. Naked mole rats can survive being submerged in water for an extended period. They can survive high temperatures and even acid. I, th- I think that's as in Whoa. low pH, not LSD. Um, but they unfortunately are not capable of surviving being run over. So that's a point for that one. Team two, uh, which animal superpower have we made up here? Can a pistol shrimp snap so quickly it generates a temperature equivalent to the surface of the sun? Or can a type of sea sponge become so acidic that it can dissolve out of the sea creature that just tried to eat it? What's a pistol shrimp? Is it like a mantis shrimp? Does it go ka-chunk, ka-chunk, that, that mantis shrimp thing? I'm guessing, we're guessing here. Yeah. This is like my jeans Hotter and the cables. temperature of the sun, that's, though. That's, that's very, very hot. That seems very unlikely, even for... Yeah, uh, whereas the acidic thing sounds more plausible, more plausible no? I, I think. think. Uh, let's go with yeah, let's go with acid sponges. It's to all. No, you got that wrong. Actually, it's the pistol shrimp. The duration of the click that they make with their pincers is less than one millisecond. The snap produces what's called sonoluminescence from a collapsing cavitation bubble. So they produce an area of very low pressure. This causes a bubble to pop into existence, which then implodes on itself. And as it does so, it unleashes a thermal pulse, which is of more than 5,000 degrees. The surface of the sun is about 5,000 degrees. It was the Dude. pistol shrimp yeah. that actually <laughs> carried the day the there. Shrimp. Right, that means we're at a tiebreaker situation to see who's going to win this. Now, the way this works is that the two teams will discuss between yourselves. When I read out this question, you'll have a very short time. You've got to work out what you think the answer is. And the team that gives us the closest answer are going to get the point. OK, so the world's fastest animal is the peregrine falcon. How fast can it go? No idea. Okay. Well, okay. Kilometers per hour. Well, so, so it's flying straight because obviously it can be gravity assisted because it can actually plummet. Yeah. So I would say, can yeah. it go slightly faster than terminal velocity? We We're going for 200 <laughs> kilometers per hour. Yeah. 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 What was your answer, Giles and Fran? Somewhere close to 160 kilometers an hour. Okay, that means Richard and Anna Laura, you are the winners this week. Oh, yeah. What's the answer? The answer is 390 <laughs> kilometers. Oh are you serious? They're a very fast bird. They're the fastest bird. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well done, Richard and Anna Laura. Congratulations to you and commiserations to our very worthy losers. I mean that in the nicest sense, as in losing the competition. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back to the questions now. Francesca. We have got a question here from forum user David, who wrote, If light cannot escape from a black hole, could one speculate that the gravitational pull from a black hole is faster than the speed of light? In other words, what's the speed of gravity, if indeed it does have a speed? So gravity travels at the speed of light, as far as we know. When we say light can't escape from a black hole, that's absolutely true. And that's to do with the way that a black hole warps the space in which the light is travelling, such that whatever happens to it, it ends up going closer to the black hole. Since um, the observation of gravitational waves, we know very precisely that gravity travels at very, very close to the speed of light. We observed an event in which two neutron stars merged and we saw both gravity waves and light emitted from that event. And based on the arrival times of the gravity waves and of the light, we know that they travel at very, very similar speeds. Thank you very much, Fran. Now, Anna-Laura, Sandra wants to know, how does your childhood affect your mental health risk later, if at all? 
So we know that your childhood is actually really important for your mental health risk. One important clue is that mental health risk often emerges still in childhood. And we know that negative experiences in early life are really, really important for making you more vulnerable to developmental illness later on in life. The idea is that if you have lots and lots of stress when your brain is developing and when your cognitive functioning is developing still, it will impact or so the stress will shape your development. And an example of this is, for instance, that your brain is really able to quickly detect threatening things, stimuli in the environment, which is, from an evolutionary point of view, is really important because when you're walking around in the woods, seeing a bear will help you to respond to that quickly, right? But when the bear is in your home environment, day in, day out, this chronic level of stress might lead to your brain to be developed slightly differently, making you hypervigilant to threatening experiences in the real world. So if someone has had a very traumatic upbringing or a bad series of life events when they're little, what should they do to make sure that they do reinforce the positives and don't slip into this vicious cycle of developing the risk factors that would put them at risk of a mental illness later? It's a whole multitude in, in things that can help and we call them resilience factors. So resilience factors are things that help if you've experienced really negative things to make you more resilient in the future. And we know that self-esteem, when, when your self-esteem is high, it helps. We know that when you have really good support from your friends, it helps. We know that when you have a caring, loving family, that that helps. So there are lots of different things and there are things within the body, within yourself, but there are also things in your environment and you don't have to have all of them. You can have one of them in order for it to be beneficial for you in the future. Thank you very much indeed. Now back to space by the looks of things, Richard, here's a question for you and this is from Hannah. When will we see the first human on Mars? I remember you on this programme a few years ago opening the gambit, talking about Mars, by saying it's a vile, horrible place, but we want to go there all the time. Yeah, same. this is my basic thesis. Space is horrible. Don't go there. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's interesting. So a few years ago, if you went and did an interview at NASA, they would talk about journeys on the way to Mars. All this was on the way to Mars. Space station was a stepping stone to Mars. You won't hear that anymore. They're now talking about going back to the moon. So that is the new destination or the, um, as we're celebrating, you know, this next year in, 20, in 2019, 50 years since the uh, first men on the moon to walk on the surface of the moon, now talk about return to the moon rather than Mars. And that's hard enough. They've got a go back and recreate these technologies. But I'm pretty certain that's going to happen. Pretty sure we will see people, whether they are NASA or Russians or Chinese, perhaps, on the moon within the next decade. I'd confidently say wow, that. Wow, that's a confident... Yeah, I will confidently say that. Years. So invite me back in 10 years on The Naked Scientists <laughs> and I will uh, either be proved right or wrong. Mars is really hard. I, I don't think... I would say... I can say quite safely, I'll say 2040 right now there'll be people on Mars. At the moment, we can't even get a coffee cup size sample of Martian soil back from Mars to Earth. And that is the problem. We can land on Mars. We can't always land on Mars successfully, as the uh, Europeans failed to land on Mars with their lander uh, last year. Yeah, last year. So, you know, it's not always easy to land on Mars. It's really difficult. And we don't know quite how to get off Mars again. 
So maybe a one-way trip. I don't think that's realistic. So, yeah. Why do we even want to go? And I don't know. You know, you look at the pictures from Mars. It's really horrible. There might once have been flowing water now. I think that, you know, it's pretty certain there was water flowing on the surface of Mars once. You know, the, the idea that you can turn it into some new Earth, I mean, it's that just, just solely the realms of, of science fiction. From what I understand it, for most of the time, if you were standing at night on the surface of Mars, because of this hazy, dusty atmosphere, you wouldn't even see the stars. So, you know, it's a grim, cold, horrible place to be. Why would you want to go? I don't know. I've been to a few holidays in Scotland. So, uh, <laughs> But the travel agent didn't initially tell me it was like that, but it did turn out to be the case. I still went. Thank you very much, Richard. Now, look, uh, Giles, this one, I'm dying to know the answer to this, which has come in from Rosie. Why is it? that however full I am after a big meal, I always have room for dessert. Indeed. Now, we've all been there, haven't they? Absolutely stuffed. And then someone comes along with the sweetie trolley and then says, would you like some of this delicious chocolate cake? And you miraculously find a sort of cream cake-sized corner that's vacant in your stomach. How does this all work? So, I mean, we we know this dessert tummy phenomenon. We go out, we have, uh, I bet you, by the middle of the second course of a meal that you're actually eating, that you will have reached your metabolic need for the day, which means that you would have made up the calories. You know, a big meal, okay, not a Michelin star fancy schmancy. Decent, decent portion. Decent portion, yet really full, yet when dessert comes, we actually eat it. The more important question actually about that is why is it specific to desserts? Because if, say, you had steak and chips and you're, you're really stuffed and the waiter comes by and says, more steak, more chips, you go do it and I feel like puking, I won't actually eat it, yet we'll actually have, have, have the dessert. Well, he, here's the point, right? When we actually throw back to the Serengeti when we're dragging an antelope back and, and you had to eat more than you needed – because you were never guaranteed to get the antelope. There's okay? no Serengeti supermarket. There's no Serengeti supermarket. The problem is something like protein is very bulky, right? So it goes in. So how, what happens? Your brain begins to change the quality of the calorie that it actually likes to eat. It begins to increase the caloric density of the food that you eat so that for every given gram, you get more calories. So you can stuff it into all the little nooks and crannies. What is, what is calorically dense? Fat and sugar. What's high in fat and sugar? Desserts. And lest you think, <laughs> lest you, and so it's a, it's a whole back from the Serengeti to keep yourself alive, even when you've had so much food. And lest you think it's human specific, you look at the grizzly bears doing the salmon run, okay? So they start getting ready for hibernation. They start by eating the whole salmon, like Garfield, tuk, 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 right? The whole thing. By the end, as they get fatter and fatter, they only eat the skin and the fat underneath it. They increase the caloric density. They don't have dessert. But that's the phenomenon. That's why. I'm liking the comparison Garfield, Grizzly Bear. I mean, you can see how you can muddle the, <laughs> muddle the two up. Thanks for that, Giles. Francesca, a quick one for you. This is also from Hannah. Could another planet exist on the other side of the sun that shares our orbit, but we never actually see it? It's like in the pantomime where the person's always behind the other person. It's behind you. Could there be such a planet? Probably not, because even if we didn't see it, because the, the sun was always in the way, we'd notice its gravitational effects. We've measured the orbits of, of the Earth and the other planets really, really precisely. So we can actually map out the influence of the planets on all the other planets. And if there was an extra one, then even though its gravitational effect is very small compared to that of the sun, we would still have noticed it. 
It's also been sort of big news recently with this um, looking way out in the solar system to the area where Pluto lurks with New Horizons getting there and looking and visiting this object, Ultima Thule. It's a sort of dumbbell-shaped blob. Two looks like two round things have sort of gently encroached and stuck together. But, you know, I interviewed Alan Stern, who's the PI on that mission, in 2005-06 when they were launching New Horizons. And he said, in 10 years, our probe's going to get there. And it was like mind-boggling to me that it could possibly take that long for something to get there. But it's five, six billion kilometres away now, Richard, is it? Yeah, well, you're looking with a lot of these missions at careers, whole careers tied up in missions. The other problem is, so you work on this mission, the good example right now is Bepi Colombo, the European mission to to Mercury. You've got all these people working on this mission, and then it's out in space. I can't remember how many years. It's five or six years, more than that, possibly more than that. Just getting to Mercury, pinging around the solar system so it can be the right speed, so it can get in orbit around Mercury. It takes all this time to get there, by which time the researchers who are originally developing it have lost interest or doing something else. It's a real issue of maintaining careers on these missions but also funding for these missions while these spacecraft are getting to their destination the the intriguing thing is that there's all that material out there that we've never seen really apart from vague smudges with very powerful telescopes and now we've actually got this probe out there and it's taken a picture of one of them but is that it now is there nothing else it's going to encounter does anyone know no i don't know it'd be interesting if it does i mean what's what's amazing when you know when i grew up you had the solar system which included pluto and that was it that was all there was. Now we know there's this ton of huge amount of stuff out near Pluto. And, you know, it just gets more and more interesting. You know, every year we find new stuff in our solar system. And now, of course, we've got two probes, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, that have left and not in the, the solar, solar system. system. Yeah. They're not even in the solar system. And we're, we're, how long is it till they get to the next thing? It's something like, is it six? Oh, th- forever. Tens of thousands yeah, of years. Yeah, forever. They, you know, um, I, I, swear, I spoke to the uh, researchers who are working on it. And they said, space is very, 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 very empty. There's not much there. Thank you very much, Richard. Now here's a very quick update on our Naked Scientists fundraising campaign. We spend about £150,000 every year making the Naked Scientists and we're asking you to help us to raise a third of that to keep the show on the road. Now what's extraordinary is that we've raised nearly 20% of our total but we've done that with the help of just 1% of you. Now we know that some of you are of limited means and can't afford to help us but we would like to appeal to those who can to consider what we do for you and what we give you as high quality programming that we make with enormous love and effort and energy every week do please consider helping us by going to nakedscientist.com forward slash donate so we can afford to keep this show on the road and making great programs for you in 2019 nakedscientist.com forward slash donate please consider giving us 10 pounds for christmas Now, a quick reminder of the Guess Who quiz that we've got running this week. Remember, we're giving you clues as to what this thing is. We told you what it sounded like. We gave you another clue, which is it's related to a meerkat and a mongoose. Here's your third clue, which is that females of this species have an enlarged clitoris. It's called a pseudopenis, and this means that 15% of the females die during their first time giving birth, and over 60% of their species' firstborn young also die. So pretty grim statistics. So what are they? If you're not quite convinced yet, we'll give you another clue in a minute. On with the questions. First of all, though, Anna-Laura, here's a question from Rory. And he says, what's going on in the brain when people have depression and anxiety? And when does sadness become depression? Right. 
Yes. We know certain things about what's going on in the brain when people are more depressed. So one of the things is, for instance, the serotonin system is a, is a neurotransmitter system that makes you happy. And that system uh, is shown to be there's a bit less serotonin in the brain in certain regions. Another thing that is kind of well replicated or well known now is that there are certain networks of brain regions that are working differently or they're more or less active in people with depression. For instance, the ventral limbic system is elevated in its connectivity and that means that it is excessively active actively giving you negative mood. Uh, we also know that the frontal striatal network is lower and that is related to loss of interest and motivation and less pleasure in activities. We also know that the default mode network is more active and that is related to more ruminative, negative thinking about yourselves. But the problem is that you can have different kind of sorts of depression. And a researcher has shown that there are over a thousand different types of depression. So we know that there are lots and lots of different types of depression. That also means that there are lots and lots of different types of depression in the brain. And in addition to that, you can have the same type of depression but with different reasons for that depression. So you can have depression because you ha you had uh, really severe stress in early life, or you can have depression because you have financial difficulties. So even if you have the same type of depression or the same symptom clustering, you can still have different causes and therefore different mechanisms through which you get to these systems. So it, we don't really know yet, and the reason for that is it's it's so multifaceted. It's certainly a tough one to crack, isn't it? And and a common problem as well. Maybe one in one in five people at any one time are said to be suffering depressive symptoms, aren't they? Giles, can you answer this question from Omar, who says, "Is obesity written in your genes? And if so, is there really anything that we can do about it?" Written is a very strong word. I, I think what is undoubtedly true is that our body shape and size, of which being obese is, is one element of, of, of that, um, has a powerful genetic element. Okay, But everything, all our traits have a genetic element. The question to ask is how much of it is genes and how much of it is the environment. And your body weight and shape and size is a very, very typical thing here in which the genes interact um, with the environment. The bottom line is, what do we know? We know that obese people, put very simplistically, are obese because of a number of genes within their brain that make them more susceptible. You can't go against physics, you have to eat more. But what happens is these genes tend to influence your feeding behavior, your behavior around food, making people slightly hungrier or slightly more driven towards food. They eat more, they gain more weight, therefore our difference in body shape and body size. Do we know where in the brain those genes are exerting their effect? In other words, biochemically, if you're a carrier of a form of a gene that makes you more prone to overeating, where is that gene manifesting its influence? I mean, there because there are now over 200 genes that we know of that each subtly influence our interaction with, with food, they exist all over the brain. I mean, some exist in an area called the hypothalamus in which it actually influences your actual hunger for food. So your tummy grumbling, oh, I'm hungry. Others can sit actually in your higher, your hedonic areas of your brain, your reward function, which influences the amount of reward the pleasurable feeling you actually get from food. And others are going to be in, in areas of responding to stress. So we know some people who eat in response to stress, other people stop eating when they respond to stress. Same hormone, but yet we actually respond in, in, in different fashions. And so all over the brain, I would have thought. One question that springs to mind there, Giles, is that we're not evolving at a genetic level very fast, mm -hmm. but 
in the last 50 years, mm-hmm. we've gone from the world population, obesity being a rare phenomenon, to obesity and overweight being a very common phenomenon, as in some populations, it's more than half the population. That cannot be accounted for by changes in our genes. So what does account for this change in the prevalence of obesity in the population? So undoubtedly, the environment, and I lose that usually for anything that's not genetic, so your lifestyle, your socioeconomic class, what have you, that has undoubtedly driven the obesity. But what are our genes for other than to respond and adapt to the environment? I'll give one simple example. If there were two people, okay, actually, actually stood there, two of me, for example, and we stood next to each other, and we looked exactly alike, we stood up, that there is no difference between us. But say we change the environment and the environment is suddenly someone came along and pushed us both, okay? Shoved me, shoved my, my twin next door to me. And I managed to tense my, my calf muscles up and stand still, whereas unbeknownst to anyone, the person next to me has no calf muscles. And so the moment they're actually pushed, they, they collapse. So in one environment where they're not being pushed, we look exactly the same. Whereas when you change the environment, when the push comes, where now our food environment is in now, suddenly the genes become unmasked. So the genes haven't changed. They've always been there. It's just the way they react to the environment. So returning to Omar's question, which is, well, can we do anything about it? Is the intervention one not of a genetic intervention or or some kind of drug, but it's the environment that's to blame. That's what's changed. That's what we've got to change back. Yeah, we have to fix the environment that we're actually living in. I mean, there are drugs that are out there that can actually work for some people. And I think for the extreme cases in which you're Mrs. Smith, you're type 2 diabetic, if you don't lose weight, you'll die, then I think there is a case for pharmaceutical intervention. But for the most of us, I'd like to think that we can really have a concerted effort to try and fix the environment that we're actually in. Charles, thanks for that. Uh, Richard, out into space again. And Jan wants to know, were he to go on one of these space tourism exploits that you've been referring to and really selling for the general public, um, how quickly would his muscles waste if he were to go and inhabit space? He'd be fine on a Virgin Galactic flight because you're only in space for sort of 10 minutes or so. So he'd be fine for that. But essentially, as soon as you remove gravity, your muscles start wasting away. There was studies, I mean, lots of studies in humans, because now humans have lived on the space station for more than a year at a time. They did a study in rats. So within 10 days, the rats lost a third of their muscle mass. And that includes heart muscle. Now, none of this would be a problem if you were going to stay in space forever. So if you go up to space and you live on the space station, you can spend the rest of your life on the space station, floating around, being this idea of this extraterrestrial human, then absolutely fine. Trouble is, when you come back to Earth and you've lost that muscle, particularly something damaging like heart muscle, you see that the astronauts getting out of capsules staggering normally. They're normally lifted out and they're carried because they, you know, however much exercise they do on the space station, and they do a lot, you know, a couple of hours a day, they're still weakened. They also lose bone density as well. So you can imagine a mission to Mars and you get to Mars, you climb down the steps, fall over and break a leg. Um, that's the sort of, you know, these are the sort of problems. So it's more when you stop rather than when you're in there that it's a problem. In the Among the astronauts to whom you've spoken when you've interviewed them, what is it like when they take those first faltering steps out of the capsule and the return to Earth? Do they feel exhausted? Do they absolutely hate it? And how long does it take them to rehabilitate themselves after, say, six months on the ISS? To get back to their full fitness, it actually takes a year. That's what they allow for. Most of them, because they're really fit. I mean, every astronaut I've 
met, they are kind of superhuman. You know, they're really bright. They're really pleasant. They're really, they're really strong. You know, it's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's sickening. But yeah, so they get back to fitness pretty quick. But it, it does. I mean, to get back to that full physical fitness that they go into spaces at, it can take, you know, up to 12 months. And that means for your average Joe, like me then I'd be really, really up the swanee without a paddle, wouldn't I, if, if I were to... Yeah, I mean... I'm not superhuman, am I? So. I mean, if you did your exercise every day, you'd be OK. I mean, you know, it's it's shown. When um, John Glenn had his second mission on the uh, on the space shuttle, he was in his, I think, his 70s or even his, his 80s. There's no, there's no reason why a moderately fit person cannot go into space and stay moderately fit in space. If they follow Giles' advice about what they eat, <laughs> if they take exercise and they come back to Earth, they won't be quite as fit as they were when they went up, but they will be fine. Well, you've mentioned food. Gail wants to know, can you actually cook food in space? What's an astronaut diet like? They've got better and better. Um, Essentially, you are heating up components of food. So they're still heating up things in an enclosed environment. And almost everything. So the things you miss, I think, from what I can gather from astronauts now, I mean, taste is affected the same way if you're in a pressurised environment on an aircraft. Things don't taste the same. So they do tend to prefer spicier foods. They've also got to gel together because crumbs are a real problem. Um, so you don't want, you know, crumbs of your food getting into a crucial instrument. So this earth, actually I, happened on a, a mission in the 1960s, one of the Gemini missions. So before the Apollo missions that went to the moon, John Young smuggled up a corned beef sandwich in his capsule, which is all a great joke and everything, until crumbs started getting into the instrumentation. What happened? Well, it was fine, but it might not have been. So, I mean, you know, as a result of taking up a, a sandwich with, with crumbs in, it could have been a real problem. Which you know what appeals to me, because I like dunking. And that's a big problem, because if you overdunk and then your biscuit goes flop, you've got an issue with your tea, haven't you? Whereas in space, I could dunk with impunity, couldn't I? Well, for much well, longer, potentially. Yeah, but you'd have to do that within a bag, because you can't obviously have a cup of tea. Well, you could, space. as long as you didn't accelerate the fluid, it would, it would stay in the cup, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, try doing that. <laughs> Try lifting up a cup of tea without accelerating the fluid. So you lift up a cup of tea, your tea, tea comes out. Oh, yeah, exactly. So it just floats around around you. So, yeah, it, it's the sealed environment. So the obvious, for obvious reasons, there's no deep fat fryer on the space station. It's more a question of heating up things, but heating up components of meals. So they can put together a meal. They could heat up, for example, a stew and then heat up some bread or have some pasta and a sauce. So it's kind of pulling the components together. There is also a coffee maker on the space station. So there is espresso coffee. I never thought I would learn about corned beef sandwiches on The Naked Scientist. So thanks very much for for that, Richard. Absolutely brilliant. Francesca, just uh, one more final question for you. We like to finish on something really simple and send people home with a simple idea to get their head around. And this one's come in. If the universe is expanding, you know where this is going. What's it expanding into? Yeah, this is actually a very good question. People often say that the universe is expanding and this means that the galaxies in it are getting further apart. And the analogy people use is if you put a lot of dots on the surface of a balloon, and those are like the galaxies, and as you blow the balloon up, the universe is the surface of the balloon, all the galaxies, the dots get further apart from each other. And this is a very good analogy, but it naturally begs the question, well, the balloon is expanding into the room. What's the universe expanding into? Unfortunately, this is where the analogy ends. The universe, the space we live in, 
has the mathematical properties or some of the mathematical properties of the surface of the balloon, but it has those properties without there being something it's expanding into. In math speak, we say that the manifold doesn't need an embedding in a higher dimensional space. That might not mean much to, um, to most listeners. Oh, I don't know. I thought that was really simple. Thanks for that. <laughs> Just uh, moving on. But no, in, in, uh, in strict terms then, does this mean that... Cause one philosophical answer I heard to this question was to say, well, the universe is everything, if that's your yeah. definition. So therefore, the universe is everything. So it's not expanding into anything because it is everything. Um, but that's sort of a get out clause, isn't it? Because our, yeah. our human brains have not evolved to grasp at the idea that there could be something that's everywhere and everything all at once and getting bigger, but is everything. It, it doesn't quite sit with our perception of how the world works and the universe works. Yeah, I think that might be the philosophical answer. From my point of view as a sort of practicing scientist, I have some observations. I do some maths which describes this expanding space, which doesn't need to include what it's expanding into. The maths doesn't require there to be an outside the universe. And then I get an answer out and I compare the answer with data and it matches the data. So that's the sense in which the universe is expanding as far as I'm concerned. If you look at where the universe is expanding, is it expanding everywhere by the same amount? And if I look at, say, the patch of space between the Earth and Mars, has that expanded a bit in the same way that the patch of space between us and the Andromeda galaxy has expanded? But obviously there's a lot more of that, so it will have relatively speaking, that would have expanded more. This is also a very good point. It's really only the bits between galaxies that are expanding. The bits between galaxies are what's governed by the overall motion of the universe. Within a galaxy, the gravity of the galaxy is kind of holding stuff together so it doesn't expand. And one way to see this is if absolutely everything was expanding by the same amount, we wouldn't notice because anything we could use to measure it would also be expanding. There you go. I said it'd be a nice easy one for us to, <laughs> to send everyone home on. Just before we finish, though, I told you earlier that these creatures make this bizarre sound. I told you that they are related to mongoose and meerkats. And I told you that 15% of females die during their first time giving birth. Would anyone like to speculate as to what this animal might be? Anyone got any clues? It's quite a tough one, this. Is it a giraffe? No. <laughs> I don't want it to. It could be a giraffe. Some sort of yak. I'll, I'll give you another clue. I can clue. see Actually, a giraffe they, making yeah. that noise. These animals frequently pop up in Disney movies. They appeared in Dumbo, Lady and the Tramp, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and as antagonists in The Lion King. Does that help? Oh. So they're baddies in the insect. They're baddies. In, baddies. They so baddies. So they're always portrayed yeah. as baddies. And played yeah. by Whoopi Goldberg. They are, they they are like. nasty things. <laughs> they don't, they're not the prettiest looking animals when you see them. It's a hyena. Amazing. And I didn't know that uh, hyenas had such a high death rate of their firstborn and that they have a matriarchal society where uh, the reason they have these extremely engorged sexual organs is because there's very high testosterone levels in the females and that makes their genital region get a lot bigger. And that means that they have the testosterone to bulk up, butch up and be able to lead their pack and be in charge. But it does come at that evolutionary cost, which is that they can struggle to give birth under certain circumstances. Fascinating how nature works, isn't it? Well, on that note, we will leave it there. And thank you to our guests who uh, were with us. That was Richard Hollingham, Francesca Day, Anna-Laura Van Harmelen and Giles Yeo. The producer this week was Georgia Mills. Next week's programme is going to be all about microbes that make our dinners delicious for us. So do join us for that bit of food for thought next week. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and thank you at home very much for listening. Goodbye. 
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.